Hello and welcome in everybody. Adam here, the Orlando Drummer, and this is episode six of the Orlando Drummer Podcast. Hope you guys are doing well. Excited for this one. How you doing, Chris? I'm doing great. Awesome. I hear we're kicking it off with a little bit of drum news, tiny bit. Just a little <laughs> bit. Um, it's about the podcast itself. Sure. And you have more details on that if you want to share. Yeah, absolutely. So we, when we launched this podcast, we were sort of on the fence about how to best distribute it because I have an online education platform, orlandodrummer.com. You've probably heard me talk about it once or twice uh, in <laughs> all of these podcasts and other videos as well. And you know, we launched some apps back in April for iOS and Android. It's called ODTV and it's just a portal into the members area there. And one of the cool features of that app or of the apps is that they allow for offline playback of audio. So just like a Spotify app or the podcast app um, from Apple, you can close the app and have audio playback in the background. And so we thought, man, this is so perfect for podcasts. Our original plan was to make this a members-only podcast. But as we've kind of thought about it and rolled out these last five episodes, um, you know, a lot of people have just been interested in getting this on Apple Podcasts, on Spotify, um, and just sort of you know, consuming this podcast how a normal podcast would be consumed. So instead of making this podcast exclusive to the members area, which is kind of our original plan, we're just going to go full force and make this entire thing free. So uh, in the next, you know, coming weeks, you will see all of the episodes that we've done so far and all future episodes. They will be on both Apple Podcasts um, and on Spotify. And of course, you can find all of them also inside of the ODTV members app. Um, you can access that through OrlandoDrummer.com or just search ODTV in the app stores. So you'll still be able to listen to it that way. And I think one thing that we'll do is as we roll out new segments, bring on people for interviews and do different things like that, there will be some extended cuts that are only in the members area. But we're just excited to tell you guys that we're going uh, we're going full force. We're, we're letting it go. So this will be free to the public, Apple Podcasts, Spotify. Excited. Yeah. Good for road trips. Good for working out. Exactly. Anything. Anything. Yeah. And that's actually a good question. I'd love to know if you guys are in the live chat or even just commenting. You know, where do you listen to podcasts? It's it's interesting hearing how different people consume them. Um, for me, a lot of times it's during editing or if I'm doing any like home projects, that's my go-to. Other people, it's working out. Some people are commuters, you know, if you're on the road a couple hours a day. So where do you listen to podcasts? I would love to know. What, uh, yeah. where, do you, where do you listen to podcasts? Uh, I was going to say extra points if you listen to podcasts while drumming. Huh. That's actually, a th I've done that. I've put, <laughs> it sounds weird, but like that, oh, what's that guy that does it? I wanna, I'm guessing the name here, is it David Dockery? A guy who's made a bunch of videos. Is that the name? <laughs> I don't know. Okay, I think, I think that's his name. Somebody, somebody will know. It's a guy who um, sort of hopped on that trend of taking like, monologues from like celebrities talking they'll do it to like cardi b ah, or like real animated people yeah and they play yeah they like do solo like Im improvised when well, i improvise but like mirroring some of the speech pianists do it as well and like shift chords around people's vocal tones that sort of thing yeah it's 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 really cool and i've actually tried that before in podcasts to like mimic along with vocals it's weird that's a weird thing to do so my favorite yeah, bonus of that. points if you do that. <laughs> yeah, my favorite of that is the guy that did it to clips of Boomhauer from King of the Hill. Yep, I've seen that. that. Was, I think that's the same guy. That's the could same. be. I, he was definitely early on that train. Yeah, so yeah. There were Seinfeld clips. There's a lot of funny ones. Or people even do like political debates, which are really <laughs> funny. Like like a Trump and Biden back and forth, like different sections for him. That's really funny. Yeah, I love it. Uh, yeah, yeah. Let us know how you listen to the podcast. It'd be awesome. Yeah. So um, that's our news for the day. There you go. Yeah. Uh, and even better news, we've introduced a, or we're about to introduce a new segment on the podcast. Oh yeah, this is a fun one. Yeah. 
So in keeping with our theme of alliteration on the podcast, this one is called Player Puzzle. So with so many drummers out there, it's hard to distinguish between all of them, but some stand out so well that they're absolutely recognizable. In Player Puzzle, we'll provide three hints to Adam to see if he can guess who's playing, and we'll try to stump him as best we can. Yeah. It's a fun one, man. I'm really excited for this. <laughs> so which are the three? So we got three hints. So which one are we starting off with? So we'll just start off with strictly audio. Okay. So for those of you listening, you can play along. It'd be really great if you're streaming it on the podcast or our app on the ODTV app. You can play along. It's great. If you're watching on YouTube, you can do the same thing. It's awesome. Cool. All right. So go ahead and play the audio clip I sent you. All right. Here we go. In the gospel realm, that's for sure. Very choppy. And those toms to me are either, oh, it's tough to say. I want to say Pearl or Yamaha would be the toms because of how like cavernous and sort of dry they sound. Definitely a coded head drummer, that's for sure. And I hear like a slight jazz influence as well. I don't know from that one. Let's go to hint two. What do we got next? Hint two, this drummer started playing drums at the age of two. At the age of two. So probably parent musicians. Huh. It's not Chris Coleman. I feel like I could recognize his his playing a mile away. But he's definitely one of those drummers as well. Uh, who started playing really, really young with his brothers and sisters. Hmm... Oh, it's a tough one. I have some guesses, but I don't want to. I don't want to be wrong. What's our What's our third one? What's the third hint? Oh man, here we go. I got a photo for you. Okay, let's see. Okay, first I'm gonna do brands. Promark Evans, I believe that is Yamaha. Yep, I know. This is Larno Lewis. That is correct. Yeah, sir. <laughs> absolutely. So with this one, you know what helped a lot was the. The black, is that an onyx head yep. on the floor tom with the snare vibe? That one for sure. The playing, I could tell there was almost a little, some stack mannerism that he did that is very him to like end sort of these chaotic crossover floor tom hi-hat fills with the <laughs> little like like um, stack hertas, yeah. right? That was a little mannerism of his. Um, the Yamaha toms, dude. Oh my God, their toms sound so good. And... Yamaha kicks are some of the most underrated kicks in the world, too. That kit sounded awesome. Awesome. But, yeah, it's funny. I feel like, yeah, the kit picture should always be last, right? Because you can play that that process of elimination. Like, who plays Zildjian Evans Promark Yamaha? Like, with the SPDSX. And then the black one. So, yeah, the kit definitely makes it a little easier. Larnell Lewis, man. I've only met Larnell once or twice really briefly, like, in passing at NAMM. But, oh, my God, absolutely sick player. I might even put Larnell in my top like five or ten drummers, he's up there. How could you not, dude? He just shreds so hard. He's, he's so good. That yeah. was that uh, that little bit of playing was an excerpt from uh, a track that he, as of this recording, just released uh, a better master recording on YouTube. He's been putting out some dope videos. Yeah. yeah. So that's called the City Lights, or an excerpt from the City Lights. Gotcha. Uh, I took that from. Awesome. Uh, awesome. So, yeah, awesome player, awesome drummer. Hell yeah! Glad. That was a good one. Cool. What's round, our next player puzzle? Round two. Okay. Um, 
Gonna start off with yet again another audio clip. Okay. Strong suspicion. The level of independence is so high, there's only a handful of people. That's tough. That's tough. So I'll tell you, my, my initial... Guess is Coleman, but I can't make that a final answer yet because I heard some stuff that doesn't quite sound like his style and it doesn't quite sound like his normal kit necessarily. It's a little drier than what you normally hear from him. But high level independence and that little that little pulsy vibe, it was at a tempo that he's at. Okay, so that's my unofficial guess so far. I'm gonna need another hint for sure. <laughs> Next hint, fun fact. He won Best Soloist in Niagara Falls at age 13. Huh. In Niagara Falls. Where is Niagara Falls? It's like New York. It's northeastern. Border Canada, America. Yep. Is it anywhere near Michigan? I've never been. Forget. Geography is like my worst category. It's That's pathetic. a fun fact. It doesn't come with any other fact. <laughs> There's no other context. Huh. Because I know Chris Coleman is from is Michigan, which does border Canada. Um, I'm gonna need I'm gonna need hint three. I don't know. I can't say with any confidence that would. Also, also, to Troy Wright won a competition very young, right around that age, thirteen or fifteen. He's but from he, Australia. He's from Australia. Yeah. That wasn't in America, so it wouldn't have been him. Bonus points if you can guess what time signature the audio clip was in. Oh, I have to. Hear, I'd have to hear that one again. All right, we'll we'll, we'll uh, somebody in the comments will know. We'll show the the photo, and then we will. Try to guess that time signature. All right, got the photo pulled up. Oh, okay. I think based off that kit, which is a Pearl Midtown, if I'm not mistaken. Looks right? like it. Yeah. Yep. Um, all minors with earthwork mics in this studio. I'm going to go Juan Carlito Mendoza. Yay! Yeah, got it. Yeah, the kit photo has to be last for sure because it definitely makes it, you get so you get so much context from a photo like that. I recognized his studio. Um, yeah, man, Juan is, is awesome. I spent a lot of time with Juan Carlito. He's a really, really good friend. Um, Guitar Center Drum Off champion, uh, among many, many other accomplishments in his career. Full-time teacher, um, but an incredible player. I should have known with that savage level of independence. He's just... He's that octopus out here, you know? Mm -hmm. He's uh he's a wild player, man. Oh, his kid kit in his studio is just so pretty. He's done a lot of stuff recently with his studio that is really impressive. I mean, he has gone in on his studio. Seriously, go check him out on Instagram and some of his YouTube videos. He's done a fantastic job with this build out. Um, and I love that he plays this baby kit because that's how I am. I always end up shrinking my sizes down. Um, I should have known with that independence. Of course, that would have been a good guess. <laughs> Freakish independence is probably Juan Carlito Mendoza. <laughs> Awesome, man. That was a good one. Good cool. One. All right. Well, that will do it for Player Puzzle this week. I oh, hope yeah. you guys not like the new segment. Uh, it's personally my favorite that we've come up with thus far, uh, and I can't wait to do it again next week. Yeah, absolutely. So that'll send that off, and we'll move right on in into Accent or Ghost. Accent or Ghost. So if Let's you're not familiar it. with this segment, 
uh, I'll present Adam with some topic within the drum industry, a new product or any viewer submitted content if you have any, and we'll get an approval, which is an accent, or a disapproval, which is a ghost. All right, what we got first? So the photo I sent you earlier okay. is the first topic. Ooh. It is the Symbol Resonance System. CRS. I've seen this before. Yeah, it's... I don't completely understand how it works, but I do understand that it's basically like a shock or a spring. It's suspension for your symbol. Suspension for the symbol. That's a great way to say that. Sure, sure. I like this a lot. This makes a lot of sense to me. It, it really comes off like... And we've talked about this. It's come up in this podcast before with different pieces of tech where it's like, oh, yeah, this makes a lot of sense. Like maybe this is how it's supposed to be done the whole time. Um, there is definitely a, a, you know, metal on metal is a bad thing. Anytime your symbol t doesn't have some sort of protective sleeve against your symbol stamp, it's really, really bad for your symbol. It leads to keyholing most of the time or it will uh, slowly like wear into the metal of your symbol. You can find this on really old symbols sometimes. Um, and it doesn't sound good either. So sort of on that same line of thought, you know, you're just separating your symbol from the thing that it is attached to. And this technology you can also find on floor toms. My SQ1 right now, the floor toms have this very unique, unique mount where the leg of the floor tom meets the side of the drum. And Sonar borrowed that technology from the car industry. They had these ways to mount engines inside of the engine bays of cars where the engine essentially had a little bit of play and it wasn't so married to the structure of the vehicle, which allows for, you don't really need resonance of an engine necessarily, but um, a little bit of that wiggle room. And so that's kind of what this would be, right? It lets your symbol, symbol breathe. Because really, this is a weird way to say this, but like all drums and cymbals would sound best if they were in contact with nothing. If they were, if you were able to like float it in the air and hear what that cymbal sounds like, that's maximum resonance and projection from that cymbal because nothing is there to inhibit the energy. Same with the drum. If you could float a snare drum in the air so it's not on a stand, it's not touching any other object, then energy would would most easily pass through that thing and you would hear the entire sonic spectrum of that thing. So anything in that direction makes a ton of sense to me. Now, my, my question is, is this something you buy and put on your cymbal stand? Is that how that works? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's got cool. two little drum keys that you just put onto the vertical pole that you would typically mount your cymbal on. Okay. And then you would put your cymbal on top of that system. Gotcha. I like it a lot, man. I'd love to know exactly how it's built and sort of unpack what they did, but ultimately they're probably borrowing from the car industry or anybody else that uses shocks or suspension systems to sort of um, mitigate energy in a different way. So I love this. I'm going to give it the hard accent and I would actually love to have these in the studio. I think it would, it would probably just bring more resonance out of your symbols, right? Cool. Yeah. Great invention. Very cool. Yeah. I love them. Uh, and hopefully I've never gotten a chance to try them out, but maybe we yeah. can get some in and we can actually give them a whirl. What are these retail? I'm, I'm going to guess in the ballpark of like 40 bucks, 50 bucks, 58 us dollars, 58. Yep. That's yeah. It's really not bad for what it is. I also like that. Well, if it were to last a long time, that's not too crazy of an upgrade for about the cost of one symbol. You could do this around your entire kit. It's a cool product, man. Hard accent. Very cool. Sweet. Love it. All right, next topic, last topic. Okay. Drum machines replacing drummers. Drum machines replacing drummers. Oh, good Lord, you're gonna send me down the wormhole on this one. Here we go, <laughs> here we go. Yeah, it, yeah. So what, what this immediately opens up is sort of the ethical relationship of like humans and tech. And 
you know, there's there's complications there for sure because I can envision a world where ultimately computers do things better than us in almost every category, right? They eventually do when the technology evolves far enough. And I think this was an initial fear that, that a lot of people probably had when you were first able to, let's say, hit the quantize button in a DAW, when you were first able to say, here's the grid of music, here's what an analog human being played, and if you press this button, it adjusts their playing and puts it back on a grid, right? So, you know, you could also say there's certain styles of music where you just want the sound of something computerized. Trap music would be a good example. Like, yeah, you can play that stuff, but it also just sounds way cooler if a computer plays it or if it's digitized from its origin, you know? Now, there is one excellent piece of content that you can reference in this conversation, and it was actually something that Jojo Mayer put out via a TED Talk a while back, and it was called, if I'm not mistaken, The Distance Between One and Zero. Zero and One. Zero and One. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yeah. It's a really cool TED Talk, and it, it sort of says that a, a computer, if it's operating in a binary system, that wherever a note goes, whether it's an eighth note or a 64th note or a ghost note on the snare or a kick drum, any note that you could play, a computer has to make the decision of does it go here or here? It's a one or a zero. And the argument would be that there is a, there is a space between those two binary options that a human being gets to explore. Now, of course, the question would be if you can subdivide far enough, right? So let's say there's a, a zero and a one, and that would be like an eighth note here or an eighth note here. But really, if you were to say in between zero and one, this is where a human can operate and place this note in, a, in, a, in an organic place. But if a computer is able to quantify where that is and say, oh, it was 64.93% of the way between this one and this zero, then you could ultimately implement a binary system to subdivide between the one and the zero with new smaller subdivisions of other ones and zeros, right? And this gets into that larger topic of like quantifying consciousness effectively, right? Can you use technology to unpack what is the human elements that we now would only define as just like human stuff, right? Like analog stuff, biology, consciousness in and of itself thoughts and where they come from, musical expression and the or, the organic or the analog nature of that. Um, so those pieces of our humanity are, are of extremely high value to us. And I think one of the, I'll say this in an extreme way, like the impending threats of technology is that it would ultimately quantify these pieces of our humanity and that a computer would be able to replicate our humanness in a way that is definitely not human, right? So <laughs> if this is a really complex topic, if you wanna learn more about this stuff, I've gone into it uh, in episode three of All In With Adam, which is my other more philosophical podcast, not drumming related at all. Uh, but this relationship between tech and humanity is one that's always been very interesting to me. So the other side of this argument though, is that you know, technology has enabled us to, I mean, first of all, have the recording industry. You don't get to record stuff without technology. I mean, I guess you could draw a certain line back in the analog tape days if you wanted to draw a line there, similar to how like the Amish drew the line with power tools as well, no power. So they still use tools. Those are technological innovations, but they drew the line at like when you involve electricity, right? So everybody gets to, to draw these lines of where tech goes too far for you. Um, 
it's very personal. It's very personal. And, and there's a lot of strong arguments on, on both sides of this. I don't know that we will see a world where at least live drumming has no value. I, I think we are a very, very, very long ways away from quantifying the human element of musical expression to the point where you just don't need humans anymore at all. I think there will be something that we can't quantify with technology that's going to exist in music for a very, very long time. One day, I think we will. I think we will. And I think there will be some indiscernible difference between a live show played by robots and a live show played by humans. I think one day we'll get there, but I don't think anybody watching this video will live to see such a thing. Um, I do think that there are much more realistic threats that happen when you talk about uh, recording environments, for sure. Because there, there is a, a reality to this idea that if you needed drums for an album that you're recording or a musical project that you're recording, that it is certainly cheaper to program those drums and to rely on computers and technology to create them for you. And you can get very close to what you would have to pay a human to come in and perform for you to record it that way. So I think it, you know, this kind of technology, drum machines, or just the idea of programming drums, I think it more directly threatens the recording environment than it does the live music environment. And with that said, I think that much how vinyl and things like that have become more popular, there is an element of nostalgia where people tend to look back and value when things were a little bit more organic and less technologically dominant. So I think that in itself will sort of pres preserve some of the recording opportunities that are within the music industry. So I think on principle, I'll have to give it an accent because I'm a fan of technology. I mean, I run a tech company in some respects. And then at the same time, I'll have to ghost it out of pure conspiratorial fear that robots are going to take over the world. So that's, uh, <laughs> we'll leave it at that, I suppose. Skynet. <laughs> Neuralink, right. baby. Cool. Chip me up. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So that'll do it for Accent or Ghost. Going to move on to a more popular segment, Sleeper Spotlight. Sleeper Spotlight. Let's do yeah. it. Yeah. If you're not familiar with this segment, we introduce a drummer that y'all are sleeping on, and we'll get Adam's impressions, opinions, or constructive criticism, if any. So let's get started with our first sleeper. Okay. It's Jamie. Jamie. Yep. Jamie, here we go. I like that snare sound. That snare does sound good, doesn't it? The Tom too, EC2s. Cool. That was really cool, man. A lot of good ideas. Very quick, very snappy playing, that's for sure. I like your kit sound a lot. I think it uh, looks like Audix mics. Can't quite tell. Um, the kit is dialed, first of all. Great sounding cymbals. I like that darkish ride with the hand-hammered bell. Very cool. Um, and I like the studio setup as well. Um, first impressions, for sure, is that it's a little bit rushed. It's a little bit on the rush side, where you're taking your best ideas and you're pushing them really, really far. And of course, there is a time and a place to do that. Um, but I would say in this context of creating content, was this from Instagram? Mm -hmm. Yeah. I would say in a context like this, um, 
you know, I, I think what it is is you don't want to project the image that this is how you play all the time. Clearly, it's not, right? And I, I know I know as well as anybody that you want to put your best playing out on the internet. But this one definitely felt like you were at some of the top of your the top of your speed range, the top of your skill set, and then you pushed really hard in that direction. And that is audible, right? I can tell that you're really reaching for some of those ideas. So what I would love to hear are you for you to back down just slightly and play some ideas that are. Um, a little bit more concrete for you, ones that aren't so reachy. But I tell you one thing I do love about your playing, and it is how exploratory you are, especially in this clip. You are you are following a, a rhythmic theme, or at least a tempo that stays steady throughout the entire clip. But you're also experimenting with um, different groove environments, different fill environments. Then you went over to the ride and sort of maintained some things over there. And so I see this element of um, you have like this exploratory quality in your playing, where you are looking at the whole kit. You're looking at all of your sounds, and you're trying to paint a picture using a, a, a larger palette of tools. And I really, really like that. I think that's something that that some drummers struggle with. It's not so natural for them to sort of see each drum as its own instrument, as its own sonic voice, its own option. And I don't think that's a problem you have at all. So I like I like how, uh, how easy it seems for you to be creative. I think that's very, very much in your favor, for sure. I would just say, um, back that speed down a little bit. Don't push it so hard. Find some of those sweet spots for, the, for some of your ideas, and I think they'll land that much harder. But yeah, cool clip, man. What's next from him? I just got another photo, or sorry, another video okay. for Jamie, electronic kit. Okay, here we go, another one from Jamie. Love that right hand, real loose. Very cool, man. Awesome. I love that clip. That was that was much more in the wheelhouse of what I was talking about earlier, right? More controlled ideas for sure. I thought that was a lot more controlled than the last clip, definitely. Um, your technique looks fantastic too. I want to compliment you on that, man. Your right hand, I can tell you've worked a little bit on push-pull. It's got a nice what's the word, the physics of it, right? Your looseness with your right hand was very, very obvious. I see a lot of uh, wrist control from your left hand, so your ghost notes and your dynamics uh, sort of flowed off of your wrist really well because your technique was just was very, very clean. Really, I don't have any particular feedback in, in the negative context for a clip like that because it was so clean, but again, it follows sort of the advice that I had for your first clip, which was to slow down, play the ideas that you can control a little bit better, which is exactly what you did in that clip. Super clean triplet fill. Um, everything was really articulate, predetermined patterns that I can tell you've worked on and thought about before. So that was really, really clean playing, man. I absolutely loved that. And uh, it's a cool electronic kit, too. It looks a little older, right? Kind of older rolling? Yeah, a little bit. I uh, can't really tell. I thought that was awesome. Yeah. I got nothing for you in that one, brother. Sick. <laughs> Sweet. Who we got next in Sleeper Spotlight? That's uh, Piero Pirelli Drums. Okay. Uh, click on either video from him. Okay, we'll do Blue Shirt here. Hold a tread grip. Beautiful kit, ain't it? Is there a clap track added? I think so. Unique groove. Really controlled, very controlled. That's the Chandler, that snare too, I believe. 
Very cool. Loved that, man. First of all, shout out crotch mic. Love that that microphone in that placement. Good, such a good complete kit sound. Beautiful drum set and fitting of his style too. That, that's a thing that I always wonder with ANFs because like there's some people that just shouldn't play that kit. You're a metal player? Nah, that's wrong, <laughs> wrong drum set for you. But this sort of flowy funk fusion style fits really, really well. I loved the I'd have to work out the pattern, but like this upside down inverted double thing that he had worked into the groove. I love that like last section of the groove there. Um, I also love that his overall dynamic level was very low. Even the accents on the snare are not like nothing about it was that loud. It was like very, very subdued, which in itself is a skill. It, you know, that it's very difficult to take whatever you play and just say, okay, play it all at half volume and make it sound just as articulate and clean and precise as you would if it was at like your comfortable dynamic. So his comfortable dynamic seems to be quite quiet, which in of itself is a very impressive way to play drums. It's difficult to sort of subdue your volume in that way and still be articulate and move around. So this was an awesome clip. It's it's funny too that sometimes that those traditional grips just fit people, don't they? Mm -hmm. Where it makes more sense for them than than it would if somebody like me played it or, you know, um, really cool. I love how dialed in his whole style and everything is. And he's got a tape machine in the back. Are we yeah. recording analog here? I have no idea uh, what his methods are, but beautiful playing, beautiful kit. And yeah. Just a, a sleeper. I'm telling yeah, you. absolutely. Cool. We got yes. one more from Piero, too. All right, let's do it. Different mix. Different snare. Oh, different kit. Yeah, yeah. Wild, isn't it? Well, that is the most dead ride I've ever heard. Oh my gosh. What a floor time. Oh. Man, I like so much about it. You know, I love how the snare is relatively modern and that it's kind of cranked. Um, and then it's got a little bit of that clappiness with whatever he's whatever piece of metal he's got laying on the snare there. So kind of a modern-ish snare. But then the floor tom, the floor tom, oh my God, that is like the most low end I've ever heard come through these P2 Explorers. That was deep, deep, man. What a cool sounding kit for sure. Um, and then the dead ride cymbal and those hi-hats are interesting as well. Man, super unique kit and mix and approach and everything. And his play style is cool too. It's very, it's very subdued. I kind of like that, that it's like a, overall a lower energy level than you would 
more just slightly below average when it comes to like what's the average dynamic or the volume level that drummers play at. Um, he seems to be very subdued, which again, that's its own skill. It's its own thing to work on. So really unique style, unique mix. I like that this mix was different than the other one, which kind of tells you that he's into the art of mixing and audio and recording everything. Man, really, really cool. Definitely give this guy a follow. That was uh, that was awesome. Very cool. Solid. Yeah, man. Cool. That'll do it for Sleeper Spotlight. Oh, yeah. End it out. The whole podcast ended out on Q&A. A little bit of Q&A. What yeah. So, obviously, these questions come from anywhere. They can come from Instagram. They can come from YouTube. They can come from the forums of OrlandoDrummer.com. Or you can even send them directly to me at Chris at OrlandoDrummer.com. First question from Brett Clur. He asks... How do you approach improving your videos and setups? It's clear for me how I can improve my own video and sound quality as I'm new and haven't learned how to do a lot of things. But your video and sound is at the top when it comes to quality in the drum world. Do you think there is room to improve on what you've already been doing? Hmm. Well, first of all, thank you, Brett. I appreciate that, man. Um, There's always room to improve. That's for sure. For sure. And... It's always relative to you, right? So it's as true for me as it is for somebody who is on day one that there is room to get better here. If there isn't, then that means you, what, did you take over the world? Like, no, you, you got stuff to work on always, right? And that applies to videography. It applies to audio. It applies to everything. You can always, always fine tune that stuff and make improvements across the board. So for me personally, when I think about what I can do to improve my content, um, at least for me, I've definitely hit a, a an area of stability where I'm not as focused on improving what you would call like video quality and audio quality, though you certainly could. Of course I can buy nicer cameras. Of course I can buy nicer lenses, more expensive microphones. I could get a Rupert Neve board in here if I wanted to drop half a million dollars and that audio would objectively be better than everything I've ever done so far, right? Um, you know, you can get a $20,000 drum set in here. I mean, of, of course, of course. But in, in my world, I feel that I've found some stability and that I'm happy with the quality that I get. And despite the fact that I could always upgrade uh, my audio, my video, and my kit, and things like that, uh, I'm comfortable with where I'm at. So that's a nice place to be. Um, and it takes a little bit of like honesty and self-awareness about, like, do you like the sounds that you're getting? Is this an okay spot for you? Sometimes the answer is yeah. You don't need to worry about improving things. But when it comes to improving content, um, in of itself, not necessarily like the technical side, the audio and the video quality, but like what the content is. For me, you know, I went through a really big change, um, you know, late last year and then into 2021, and in that we decided to start making very different types of content. And I think, you know, the lesson there, the thing that I learned was that <clears throat> I did the same thing for so long, and I'm glad that I did. It helped me build um, a YouTube following, it helped me build an Instagram following. It, um, you know, I dedicated my 20s to creating something that, that very much helps me sustain my livelihood now. And it's allowed me, my online website um, especially, it has allowed me to explore different types of content, this podcast being one of them. So for me, when I think about improving my my content or evolving my content over time, it's not just about the audio and the video and the gear because, again, I spent a lot of time, I spent 10 years investing in that and I'm really happy with where I'm at um, in terms of that, that tech quality. For me now, it's a little bit more about getting out of my comfort zone in terms of uh, my stylistic approach. Podcasting is an excellent example of that. I mean, we've made all sorts of different types of content in this studio, but this is very new for mm -hmm. us, right? I mean, it's definitely... Uh, 
um, we're reaching a little bit and trying something that, that's definitely uncomfortable in some contexts. Putting out very different types of content is always going to be uncomfortable. So for me personally, that's where I see a lot of the, the evolution taking place, a lot of the growth taking place. You know, for somebody a little bit earlier in their career, you might very well be focused on more of the gear side of things. But I would say that you can look forward to a little bit more of a sense of stability when it comes to gear. You don't have to just endlessly spend money to improve your content. At a certain point, you're gonna own all the gear and then it's back to the heart of the problem, which is how do you make good content? And that's something that you can spend uh, the rest of your life working on and we're, we're in that process as much as somebody is that's on day one, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Cool. Yeah, great question, Brett. Sweet. Next question from Jordan Schultz. Okay. He asks, in what ways has social media changed since you made your social media masterclass video? Dude, Jordan, that's a great question, man. Because I did make, I made a social media masterclass. <clears throat> it's on OrlandoDrummer.com. And I actually did maybe four or five classes. It was a live stream, like a paid masterclass type thing. We had seven to 10 people in each one. So there's a lot of guys that actually did that with me and girls. And... You know, it's ironic because tech and social media, it changes so fast that there are definitely some things in there that are maybe not so accurate anymore. One of them would be post frequency. I post a lot more now than I used to. I used to have this concept about leaving gaps in your content to allow people to, I think the way, way I used it was like, the way I worded it was allow people to miss you, give people an opportunity to say, you know, I wonder what happened to that guy's content and then hit him with something good a little bit later. That COVID really changed that um, in that people just have a, a way higher posting frequency than ever before. So I think that has definitely changed for me. We're trying to put out a YouTube video almost every single day. Many of them are clips from this podcast. Um, so posting frequency, that certainly changed a bit. I would recommend a much higher posting frequency than I would have three years ago. Uh, but one of the concepts that's broken down in there that is relatively timeless is the uh, Hero Hub Help concept that's broken down inside of that social media masterclass. Um, you can find that whole class. It's still on OrlandoDrummer.com. And that particular segment, this idea of having three types of content, hero content, which is your unsustainable premium content that's very difficult to make, um, then your hub content, which is very sustainable, easy content to make, and then your helpful content, which is creating value and it's free completely. Um, having those three categories is really, really helpful. I, and that's still a huge philosophy for me in the world of content creation. You know, I'd really have to dig back into that class and see if there was anything specific that's kind of dated in there. But you know, a lot of that class focuses on elements of branding and all that stuff still holds true. So that would be colors and fonts and camera angles, lighting, color correction, and all of these little elements that help people to identify you in a very saturated ocean of people doing kind of the same exact thing. So I would say probably 90% of the information in that class is still accurate and still holds up. But one of the big differences would be uh, post frequency, man. I think people are so accustomed to, I guess we'll call it like the 24-hour news cycle, that information, you know, in order to stay relevant, it kind of has to be new. Because I remember years ago on YouTube, and you, you remember this YouTube era, when, when you sat around with friends and you were all going to watch YouTube videos, you pulled up the classics, right? Where you would say, have you seen this one? And it had already it had been out for like two years, but that was the YouTube video that you would pull up. It was a classic, you know? Um, Chicken and waffle fries. What was the... Unforgivable. Remember that one? That was the old... Anybody knows Unforgivable. 
It's a, it's a, it's a classic. You're too young. It's a classic. It's a classic. Age they, gap. Yeah, yeah. There, there's all sorts of classic you know, YouTube videos that people still might have, but that used to be how it worked. You would pull up like the hits and you would play those. And now, you know, when those friend YouTube hangout sessions happen and everybody's like air playing different YouTube videos, you're playing new stuff. You're playing stuff that just came out really recently. So I think in a lot of ways, posting frequency is just much more important than it was a few years ago. I think 24 hour news cycles has contributed to that a lot. Um, I think websites that are a lot faster in their nature of delivery, which would be TikTok and Twitter, I think those have had a big impact as well. But yeah, I think you need to post more often than uh, than you did a few years ago. That's for sure. So that would be the biggest difference. But really good question, Jordan, for sure. I got to rewatch that masterclass to make sure there's not anything totally like dated and inaccurate in there. But it, probably not. I think it's okay. <laughs> <laughs> cool. All right. Well, thank you for those answers. It's a beautiful Q&A se- uh, segment. We'll have more next week. Uh, just as a reminder, you can send any of these questions straight to me at chris at orlandodermer.com. Comment them below at YouTube, on Instagram, at Instachops, uh, or Adam Tuminaro, uh, or at the forums of orlandodermer.com. Yeah. So check it out there. Absolutely. And I'll hand it over to you to close out the whole podcast. Sure. So one thing I was thinking about this week in making some tweaks on my kit, moving things around a little bit, uh, is this one lesson that I, I've shared with a lot of private students years ago when, when that used to be my full-time job teaching privately, and it's that you should never get married to your setup. Because I think a lot of times when we make gear decisions, they become very personal. The way your drum set is set up is very personal, down to the millimeter, right? Or at least down to the the inch, right? Um, The distance that you have your rack tom from your snare drum or how far to the left your hi-hat might be or to the right if you're, you know, playing backwards. (laughs) If if you're weird, (laughs) what's wrong with you and you're playing backwards. Uh, (laughs) But all of those little, those decisions, those micro decisions and those little placements, all of those have a weird way of of forming this identity where your kit is your kit. And it is. It is your kit. And that is the way that you've, you know, preferred to set things up. And it feels absolutely optimal to you. But there is a huge value in willing to, to make some changes that might be uncomfortable for you initially. And I learned this lesson, honestly, with a high ride cymbal in that it never made any sense to me. I had grown up my entire life playing a very low, flat ride cymbal. And it just seemed like so not me to put my ride cymbal up high. And for you, maybe it's not a high ride cymbal. Maybe it could be an angle on your rack tom or adding another floor tom, or maybe it could be a side snare. Maybe it could be putting a stack sort of above your kick drum, or maybe um, adding a splash cymbal to the top of a crash over on your left. There's all sorts of these weird little decisions that you can make. And I think a lot of times we, we play this identity game with our own drum set where The decisions that we've made are so deeply personal to us that anything that is new or any dramatic change feels like an infringement on our musical identity or our identity as a drummer. And that's really not the case. So, you know, for me this week, I'm definitely experimenting with a couple of weird little little movements and placements and tweaks with things around the kit because I don't want to get too comfortable. And so I would say this week, that's just something to think about. You know, do something uncomfortable on your setup um, and just give it a shot. Be open-minded. See if it's something that can inspire you. And more often than not, you'll find that's what ends up happening is you get a different idea um, or you have a 
a different approach to how to use this piece of gear in this position, in this place, right? It could be merely the angle of something or it could be adding or taking away a piece of gear. But all of those variables, it's really important that you know the older you get, the longer you play, that you still return um, and sort of tweak some of those variables because I think there's a lot to be learned there and it can inspire a lot can inspire a lot of creativity in your playing uh, and just in your musical expression. So some food for thought this week and hope you guys uh, hope you guys enjoy. Cool. Hell All yeah. right. This has been episode six. Thank you, Chris. Appreciate it as always, brother. You're very welcome. All right. See you guys next week. We will see you all next week and keep an eye out for uh, Apple and Spotify. Podcasts will be there very soon. Thanks, guys. <laughs>